Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. verses 1 to 12. A very famous passage. It's difficult to preach famous passages. Uh, But I'm going to give it my best this morning with God's help. And we're looking today at the total healing that is available in Jesus. Follow along as I read. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near the house because of the crowd, uh, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let him down. They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed And walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, Back in July of this year, there was a Twitter. Um, thing that occurred where one pastor asked this question. I really made this statement and he left it open for people to finish. The most bizarre thing that ever happened to me while I was preaching was someone said our church did an anniversary service at the lake and our pastor had a lady doing yoga on a paddleboard behind him about 80% of the time. That would be bad. No, no yoga behind me when I preach please in the uh, baptistry. How about this one? Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a lady holding a rabbit. Yes, a rabbit. It was an emotional support pet, and it was huge. (laughs) Do we have any emotional support pets in the church this morning? Don't say your husband, ladies. All right. (laughs) Uh, I had to keep preaching while I watched a mouse browse through the donut and snack platter at the back of the auditorium (laughs) for most of the sermon. You would immediately know if there was a rat within 100 feet of me. Don't worry about that one. Even though I have the high ground. A man, mentally unwell, approached the stage calmly, wielding a spoon, and requested me to pluck out his eye with it. I I love this one. I was preaching at a senior adult ministry once when a man in his 90s accidentally hit his alert button and it started going off loudly, and he started screaming, disregard, disregard, into his chest. 
An ambulance showed up soon after. So far, I've not had anything like that happen. Um, but I don't think that maybe there was anything ever so distracting as that. That's a, it may not have been like that, but that's a remake of a first century home in that area of Capernaum. They think they know where Peter's house was, and there's actually a church built over it. Um, with a glass floor so you can look down into the, the home that they think was Peter's in Capernaum. Uh, but we know this story. Many of us growing up in church have seen it on uh, flannel graph, right? The flannel board with the, the guys. And um, we, we, we just think to ourselves, man, how rude to rip somebody's house up. Let's clear this up. Uh, they were you can see, you, you may not be able to see, there were thick support boards, uh, and then there's reeds over that, and then there's mud and thatch, and they had to rethatch those houses often. So it wasn't, it would have been weird, I imagine, but it wouldn't have been such an inconvenience. There was a way to get up to the house. Uh, most people in the ancient Near East didn't live in their houses, they slept in their houses. They lived outside, and there were always a ladder or a staircase to get up so you could be on the roof in the cool of the evening or sleep out there uh, in the summertime. So it wouldn't have been that difficult to break through the roof, and they, they could have fixed it for, the, for Peter and his mom in a day. Because this probably was Peter's house where this occurred in Capernaum, which was Jesus' new base of ministry. Uh, honestly, as wild as that would have been, that wasn't the most shocking thing when they tore the roof off and they let the man down, the most shocking thing would have been the first thing that Jesus said. Because that was, if you know the time, an astounding thing for someone that they would have conceived of as being a man to say, and that is, your sins are forgiven you. Well, as we look at this today, I think sometimes we misread this story. And I want to go in just for a minute about how, how you read the Bible, okay? Because when it comes to reading the Bible, we can sometimes maybe miss the point. How many of you have heard a sermon on this with the main application being something like, so make sure you bring your friends to Jesus? That would have been what I heard. And that's a great application, but what we can do if we're not careful is we can, we can misread uh, the story and, and misread the main point. Uh, and what I want you to see is this story is told in a couple of the other Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke. And you know how it goes. Any one story can have a couple of different meanings, right? And if we want to be faithful Bible readers, what we have to do is not just look at what Jesus did, although that's the most important thing, and what Jesus said we need to ask the question, why did Mark include this? And why did Mark include this here? And how does Mark tell us? And Mark wants us to focus on a couple of things, I think, this morning. And here's what gives us our clues. We're beginning to look at a series of five stories where Jesus begins to have run-ins with the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus has now... Uh, kind of moved out of that first phase of ministry. Uh, he cleansed a leper, and Jesus went and he told that leper, 
hey, you need to go to the priest and you need to show them that you're clean so that they can pronounce you clean. And Jesus has already said for us what the, the point of his ministry is. The crowds are building, excitement is building, uh, and now Mark wants to tell us that uh, he's not popular with everyone. And while the crowds are growing, that's how our story starts, they can't even get to the house, Jesus uh, returns home, and you can kind of tell by the way the Greek is written where it says it was reported that he was at home. It's not like he was advertising his presence. It just got out, hey, he's back. And the people crowded around, and it says Jesus was speaking to them, and it was such a crowd that these men were bringing someone uh, to help a paralytic man. They dug through the roof, they dropped him down, and then Jesus begins to really reveal the essence of his ministry, and that brings conflict with the people of the day. And so I think since Mark is including this in a list of stories where Jesus is coming head to head with these scribes and Pharisees, it's probably Mark's point less that we be like the four friends and more that we not be like the scribes. There's two points, right? Yes, bring your friends to Jesus, but also don't be like these guys. Don't be like these guys. And so what I want us to look at this morning is the scribes' suspicious skepticism. Hopefully I spelled all that right, and I looked up whether or not I have to put an S after the apostrophe. I think we're good. The scribes' suspicious skepticism. Then after that, I want us to look uh, at, uh, really, the Son of Man. Uh, and then I do want us to look at uh, his friends. So we've got the suspicious skepticism of the scribes. We've got Jesus' healing authority. And then we've got the friends' tenacious faith. Let's look, first of all, at the scribes' suspicious skepticism. Five stories here telling us that some bad guys are coming on the scene. And the amazing thing is, in all of this, that throughout the Gospels, that the, the, the people who were the greatest enemies of Jesus were held in the highest regard in that day in terms of religious life. I always say this, better to be lost on a bar stool than a church pew. And you're like, you don't mean that. I mean it. The Apostle Paul says... Uh, that he was the chief of sinners. And he didn't mean that as some offhanded re emotional remark. In 2 Timothy, when Paul says that, he's literally saying, I was the worst and I was saved so that in me Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience of taking the worst sinner ever and making him the best missionary ever. Paul's life was to be a picture of Jesus' saving grace. And Paul wasn't a barstool guy. Paul was a church pew man. He, was, he probably had, I've read, the equivalent of three PhDs in the law. He was smart. He knew his theology. He had the Bible memorized. His head was good. His heart was wrong. And those are always the people that Jesus went after most. Woe is us. I'm not saying leave church. I'm saying we need to look at these guys. They had a suspicious skepticism by Jesus. The scribes were... The, the, like the, the theological lawyers of the day. So they were well-versed in everything. They were right. When Jesus said to him, hey, your sins are forgiven, they immediately knew something that was true, and that is they knew that if Jesus wasn't God, he shouldn't be saying that kind of stuff. 
And so they were right. But here's how this interaction with Jesus ends. After these five stories, I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 6. I hear no Bible pages flipping. Y'all there? 3-6. There we go. 3-6. After these five interactions with the Pharisees and scribes, listen to what it says. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them how to do what? This ain't going to go good. It's the theological guys who end up with murderous intentions in their heart. This is why sometimes we need to be less, excuse me, sometimes we need to be less appalled at a pride parade than we do at a church business meeting. Amen? This is why despite my love of theology, my love of reading, my love of the word, that if our hearts aren't right, we could end up being the bad guys. Every time the scribes are mentioned in Mark, there's only one time that they're mentioned favorably as guardians of, the, guardians of the teaching office. They would have come and checked Jesus out. They did the same thing with John. A group from Judea came to check out this young upstart to see if he's okay. And probably the reason these guys were here was in some capacity to see if he was an all right teacher so that they could make their pronouncement upon him. There was only one problem their heart wasn't right it says several things remember when jesus first taught it said that he taught uh, and what happened is after he taught his fame spread everywhere throughout galilee and if you look back in chapter one it says that when the people heard him speak they said this is a man that speaks with authority not like one of the scribes or the pharisees so what was the word going around today This dude is not like these scribes and not like these Pharisees. This guy really knows how to teach with authority. And that apparently really, really got under the skin of the Pharisees and the scribes because it tells us in chapter 15 that out of jealousy, the scribes handed him over to Rome. So in other words, their head was good, their heart was bad. They loved theology. They loved the place of preaching. They loved to be able to cast their judgments. They loved when the crowds listened to them. And because that's what they loved instead of the Lord, when the crowds began to dissipate and to go after someone else, they became jealous. It was out of envy that they handed him over. Mark 11 says the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared Jesus because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. There's nothing wrong with being a preacher. There's nothing wrong with the theology, there's nothing wrong at all. And I, you know me. We have so many in our denomination and in our churches that are like all heart and anti-theology. And so we have some people who have like they're on fire for Jesus. They just don't know what Jesus they're on fire for. I'm all for theology. But we need to be more like John the Baptist than the scribes. Because as the people began to leave the scribes and the Pharisees, they became jealous and murderous. And when they left John the Baptist, he said... I must decrease, he must increase. Which means, as wonderful as theology and Bible instruction is, it is not helping you if it is not shaping your heart to love above all things the glory of Jesus Christ. And so because of their 
jealousy and because of their greed, they became the enemies of Christ. And I just want you to see this. It says, look at verse 10 of our chapter, chapter 2. First five words of verse 10 in my translation is this, but that you may know. Now, if we were good Old Testament readers, you would hear, uh, you would hear Old Testament in that. You would hear the story of the Exodus. You would hear Moses talking to Pharaoh. And you would hear Moses saying, in order that you may know that God is God, I'm going to send these plagues upon you. This would have been an overtone that Mark's readers would have heard and gone, wait, what? You're saying the scribe, like Jesus is now a new Moses and the scribes are now the wicked, hard-hearted Pharaoh? Mark would have said, unfortunately, because all of their learning and all of their service and all of their tithing and everything they did was done in the service and the glory of their own name and their own reputation and their own success and their own character And that's exactly what made them pharaohs when Jesus showed up on the scene. How can you tell if you're a Pharisee or a scribe like this? It's difficult. We get some clues. Firstly, you can tell uh, in the way that they talk about Jesus. It's a little bit more emphatic uh, in the Greek. Look at verse 7. He says, why does this man speak like that? It's sort of like, who is this guy? We're from Judea. We're from Jerusalem. This guy is from Galilee. He's from the pagan, idolatrous north. We're from the good place. We have the pedigree. Who is this guy? If we have that sort of thing in our hearts, we could be scribes. They judged him on the outside, not on his heart. Jealousy, judgment. These scribes were concerned about the narrow minutiae of the law instead of the real things. Remember what Jesus said when they were talking about tithing? Jesus said, yeah, you're right, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. That is mercy and faithfulness and love. Jesus says these things aren't important, but you guys major on the minors and you minor the majors. The people who accepted Christ when he came are the people who understand the big sweep of the Old Testament. Mary and Zechariah and others, when Jesus came, they saw that mercy and salvation had come, that God had shown himself to be right. When the scribes saw him come, they just saw that his disciples didn't wash their hands the right way. Jealousy and greed, and they became the pharaohs. And so Jesus said to them, I'm going to do something so that you might know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. Those are the bad guys. Are you a bad guy? You minor on the majors? You get really riled up about stuff that just really isn't important? And do you hardly move when people are talking about justice and faithfulness and the weightier matters of the law? Are you jealous Uh, When someone else gets the applause, or are you like John the Baptist, Jesus, as long as Jesus increases, as long as Jesus increases, that's a temptation for all of us. These are the bad guys. Don't be one of them. Let's look at a couple of good guys. First of all, the good guy. And remember our point, whenever you read 
a, a Bible story, especially from the New Testament, the main point would never be something like drag your friends to Jesus. The main point is always something like Jesus is awesome, right? The, the, the heroes of the story aren't the four dudes who brought their friend. Who's the hero of the story? Yes, right? Because when it ends, look at verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. They weren't talking about the four dudes, right? They were talking about who? Jesus. So what do we learn about Jesus in this miracle? Well, we learn who he is and we learn what he's come to do. What has he come to do? The Bible says that Jesus has come in this story to bring us total healing. This was the point of Jesus's miracles. Jesus's miracles were there to say, hey, when I have full reign over the earth, this is what it's going to be like. Complete and total healing. Complete and total forgiveness of sins. Listen to me. Complete and total community. Because those are the three things that Jesus addresses here. First, he says, son, and I love that, What's the first word he says to the guy? Son. He says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, some people have looked at this and they said, of course he needed his sins forgiven first. He was sick and all sickness comes from sin. Now, the, one of the improper ways to respond to that is go, no sickness comes from sin. No, some sickness comes from sin. Maybe, maybe this guy was sick because of his sin. Maybe he was paralyzed because of his guilt. That sort of thing happens, right? What does the Bible say about this? Is Jesus trying to draw some intrinsic connection between this guy's sin and his sickness? I don't think he's trying to draw an immediate connection, but he is trying to draw a connection that I'll point out. But first of all, let me say this. The scripture certainly does affirm that disease and physical death may be caused by individual sins. You can go back and look these up. Deuteronomy 28, 27, Psalm 107, 17 and 18, John 5, 14, Acts 5, 1 through 11. I mean, why did Ananias and Sapphira die? Sin, right? 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. Some people are so wrong that they sleep because of their sin. That's New Testament euphemism for death. While the scripture does affirm that disease and physical death may be caused by individual sins, this is certainly not always the case. Remember John 9, where Jesus uh, was healed that young man who had been born blind from birth? The Pharisees' question was, all right, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, he's not blind because of sin, he's blind for the glory of God. And so the Bible does connect some sickness and death with sin. The Bible doesn't show a direct connection between every sickness and sin. And there are a lot of people in the scripture and in the history of the church who are very godly people who suffered with sin. So I think if you're really sick and if you're experiencing one sickness after another, maybe a question to ask is there some sin that the Lord's trying to use sickness to get my attention but if there's not a direct revelation of it, I certainly, direct revelation, if the Lord doesn't, if, if that's not the impression that you get, uh, then don't look too long in, in that. Don't dig your fingers through that. Sometimes we're sick just because we live in a sinful world. 
that is characterized now by death. And I think this is the connection that Jesus is trying to show when he starts by saying, hey, son, your sins are forgiven. He's not trying to say there's a direct connection between every sickness and sin. And there are people who believe that. And this may be unholy, but I generally want to punch them in the throat. Because they don't help anybody. And, and all they know is conviction and all they know is bad theology, and I wish they didn't have the platform that they often do. Sometimes sin does lead to sickness. Did I say punch in the throat? Hug and whisper theology in the ear is what I meant. <laughs> Bless you, dummy. Um, I may have gotten off track there. But what Jesus certainly is showing through this miracle is he's showing the nature of the kingdom that he intends to bring. And what is the nature of that kingdom? The nature of that kingdom, listen, is full and free forgiveness of sins. When Jesus comes, those who are in his kingdom will experience his presence because of the full and complete forgiveness of sin that he offers Sin can make you sick if you feel guilty about it all the time. It can give you OCD and anxiety. It can give you physical symptoms. These things are well documented. Some of you need to hear this morning because so much of what you do and so many of the steps you take, you take as a way of overcoming some past sin. And frankly, my brother and my sister, that's not the way it works. You don't please God by the things you do. You don't make up for anything. You accept full and free forgiveness by the death of Christ. And that, that death is so powerful that it extends to any sin you may have committed. The second thing that Jesus wants to show is, though, because sin is in the world, death is in the world, and sickness is in the world, and because of that, he's going to undo sickness and death as well. The final thing to die in the Bible is death itself. And the Scripture says that one day we will... Uh, walk with bodies that instead of being characterized by the flesh are animated by the Spirit of God. They won't be sick. They won't die. They will forever uh, be glorious things. C.S. Lewis says this, that when you're in church, you're sitting next to people that one day are going to be so glorious that right now you'd be tempted to bow down and worship them. And here's the thing, that would be completely unbelievable and presumptuous and stupid, except Jesus is raised from the dead. And his death and resurrection is the sign and the symbol and the proof that God is going to do for everyone who trusts in him what he did for Jesus. And then the third thing that Jesus does in his healing authority is he restores community. And you're like, what? Where do you get that? What's interesting in Mark is just about everything Jesus heals somebody from is something that in that day you would have been shunned for. Because they did connect sin and sickness. And so if you were paralyzed, people didn't want to touch you. You had, you had cooties, right? And so what Jesus is doing here is he's not simply restoring someone to God and not simply restoring someone to health. Jesus is restoring this man to community. And let me just go on a three-minute diatribe 
The biggest sickness that we face in our world today is a loss of community. It's, we now have, for the third year in a row, we have a shorter lifespan than the year before. Do you know why? Opioid deaths and suicide. There's a new, whole new thing for them. They're called deaths of despair. And we have a rise in anxiety and we have a rise in OCD. And there seems to be some connection to the fact that we've been told by this world that if we're going to know who we are and what we are, we have to define that for ourselves. And we think that's freedom and we think that's great. But a hundred years ago, there was a whole lot less of all of this because people defined themselves not by what they thought they were, but by what their community said they were. And that may feel like bondage to you, but you know what bondage is? Opioid addiction. And bondage to anxiety. People didn't seem to have so much trouble when they just knew they were going to do what their dad did. And so I can't say this enough. We need true community. You need to be in a group of people who can both clean your clock and weep with you and hug you and encourage you. And if you don't have that, there's, there's, there's no doubt that there's a connection between the breakdown of the family and the fact that people don't know if they're a boy or a girl. Something like that has always been in society. That's true. But at this level, no. No. And it has to do with the fact that we now define ourselves. And if the family is broken down, where's one of the only places people are going to find family? In a church? We're in a gang. We're at a gay bar. Somebody needs to know you. As a matter of fact, a lot of people need to know you. And, and we should be spending time with one another. Some people say it's just hard to make connections at this church. That's true in some sense. You've got an introverted pastor, it bleeds down. I understand that. If you really want connection, let me make two suggestions. Are you ready? And you may not like these, but here they are. And don't complain to me until you've done these two things. Set an offense, baby. Set an offense. Show up at this church on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and sit and drink coffee with people and eat nutty bars. And then go to a Sunday school class where you tell people your prayer requests and you talk about the Bible together. And then, if you can, which many of you cannot, on Wednesday nights at 5.30, we have a meal where we sit together and you just go and you sit with people and you talk to them. And the thing is, you may talk about, you don't talk about great deep things, but quality time comes from quantity time. You need to be restored to a community and we need to work hard to maintain community. And it's not hard because I'm sinful and you're sinful, right? I'm sensitive and you're sensitive. But what Jesus is doing one of the things that these people would have immediately picked up on that we don't pick up on is that in this miracle, Jesus was basically giving this man a new life with a bunch of people who would now not think he had cooties. And that is as much a part of what's going on as the fact that he can rise up and walk and he can say that his sins are forgiven. So Jesus has come for you. And in his kingdom, there's going to be full and free forgiveness of sins. There's going to be complete and total healing and there's going to be restoration of community. I said this on Wednesday night. I'm getting off. I'm, don't worry. We're, we're, we're wrapping it up. We're closing it down. 
People make fun of monks all the time and monastic orders and places where monks live, monasteries, because they think these guys are so separated from the world. Do you know when monasteries started? They started when the, um, the empire of Rome was crumbling and there was absolutely no uh, good society anywhere in the Roman world. And what a bunch of Christians decided to do was to separate, not just to separate from the sinful world, but to separate so that they could show the world what true community should look like around Jesus instead of around Caesar. And then they went out and they lived among those people and they did good for the community. And yes, there's a lot of weird and warped things in monastic life, and I don't think we should be monks, but I like what they were thinking, that there should be one place in this world that everybody can look to and see real community, and it's supposed to be the church, and it is as important as evangelizing. In a time of societal breakdown, having good community together is evangelizing. It is no small thing. As light as the thing as I make of it sometimes, and all of us, we are called to be together and to show this world what it means not to have no problems, but to work through them to the glory of God. And finally, you have these friends with the tenacious faith. If the friends do show us anything... They show us this, that the kind of faith that will get the Lord's attention, and you can take that wrongly, but don't. The Lord attends to us. But the kind of faith that he's just really pleased by and puts a smile on his faith is tenacious faith. And what the tenacious faith of these men assumes is the same thing that is assumed throughout the Scripture. And here's what it is. Are you ready? there will always be an obstacle to you believing in God. There will always be an obstacle. That can be an obstacle outside of you. It can be an obstacle within you. James says that we face trials of various kinds. But it says that God gives those things to us in order to test our steadfastness. And he says that those who are steadfast will receive the crown of life. There was an obstacle to overcome for these men. They needed to get to Jesus with their friend, and they overcame all obstacles, even if it was socially unacceptable, because they wanted to be connected to Christ. One commentator says, their faith showed its reality by its obstinacy and stubbornness in refusing to give up hope. That's what these men show us. And so what do we see? We see this morning that it is very easy for us to have all the answers and to be very far away from Jesus. We see here the, the, the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring. That is full and free forgiveness, full and free healing, and restoration to community. Nobody's saved alone. We're saved to be a part of God's people. And here we see the kind of tenacious, obstacle-overcoming faith that brings a little bit of that down to our very lives. That's what we need. And so this morning, if you want to come to Christ, the call is for you to have an obstacle-overcoming, tenacious faith to not be like those scribes, but to come wholeheartedly to our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, give us that faith, we pray, in Jesus' name.